Welcome to Q-Talks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. This episode was sponsored by DesignSpark, design tools and resources for engineers to help make their ideas happen. I'm Thomas. And I'm Shreya, and we're your hosts for Q-Talks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not so typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. This week on Q-Talks, we are talking to Stuart McTavish and James Parton. Stuart is director of Ideaspace, which supports startups in Cambridge with co-working space and an active entrepreneurship community. And James is the managing director of the Bradfield Center, another co-working space for tech scale-ups situated at the Science Park in Cambridge. James is also the co-host of a podcast, which you can find at scalingfailingprevailing.com. Hi, Stu and James. Thanks for coming on the show with us. Maybe we can start off by talking a little bit about your backgrounds. Uh, Stu? I like to describe myself as a failed squash player. Nice. I lost a bet with my football coach and ended up in Cambridge. And then while I took computer science classes for an hour a day, I played squash for four hours a day. Wow. Um, upon graduating, I discovered it was easier to start companies and make a living than it was to play squash professionally. Um, <laughs> Then three companies later, I was in the process of exiting. I went to my wife, here's my next company. Mm. Um, she suggested that if we were to start a family, I had to be home more often. Being a computer scientist, I looked quizzical, so she explained it to me. I went, oh, I have to be home more often. She said, go get a job. I went, okay. I went to my investors and I said, my wife told me to get a job. How does one do this thing? I've never been successful at that. Um, and either thankfully or unthankfully, depending on your perception, um, one of my investors was Herman Hauser, who just donated the money to the university to create the Hauser Forum where Idea Space was. Mm. And Herman suggested, you might be good for this. And if Herman suggests something, you say, yes, Herman, and you go and do it. Um, and then I went back and said, good news, they've offered me the job. And he went, wow, I was just saying that to give you something to do, but congratulations. And 10 years later, 500 companies and 1,000 members later, I'm still here. So there you go. Fantastic. And how about you, James? Uh, so I spent the majority of my career in telecoms. Mm -hmm. So I started at BT. Then I went to O2. Um, did a kind of, well, quite a lot of different roles. Some commercial, some sales. Most of the time as product management, product development. So I did most of the kind of data services for O2 back in the 2000s, like picture messaging, uh, video streaming, music downloading, mm. all that kind of stuff. Then I figured out that, Uh, telcos a suck at launching products. Um, so started to champion uh, API programs inside telcos. So I launched a developer program called Litmus for O2. Mm -hmm. Then I kind of, that was successful enough to get moved up to group level. So I went to work in Madrid with Bluevia, which was a Telefonica-wide uh, developer program. And then I got the startup bug and then went to work for a US startup called Twilio. Mm-hmm who again were in kind of telco APIs. Um, so I set up Europe for them, did that for five years. We IPO'd in 2016. Oh, wow. And at that point I left um, and then got talked into coming to Cambridge to run the Bradfield Center. So what are the types of startups that you both have in Ideaspace and Bradfield Center? We, or at least Ideaspace, 
we do support startups, but through the founders that we work with. So kind of idea space is very much focused on trying to identify and support founders as they're in the process of discovering what their startup should be. Mm -hmm. Kind of, I very much believe that our job is to help founders get better at that, and their job is to create startups. So we try not to support startups directly, as founders don't like it when you interfere with their thing. But helpful is hopefully good. So we tend to work with people post-innovation, so they have some sort of concept of what they want to do in the world, but before they've figured out how to deliver that. So in terms of the startup itself, it tends to be from zero people up to five or six. But kind of we do talk about supporting founders and ventures more broadly. So we've helped people with nonprofits, charities, as well as traditional tech and venture companies. Hmm. And then hopefully if it all goes well, they move on to you, I suppose, James. Yeah, yeah. So we're a little bit later than that. So we typically see, well, the average age of our companies is six years old. And they're typically six people and above. Um, so we've got about two or three companies at, 25 plus people mm -hmm. um they um so yeah they're, they're the the majority of software businesses um so uh building full of text scale-ups essentially um quite a few of them are new to cambridge 40 percent of the members mm. are new to cambridge so we've got quite a diverse building that's really interesting it is and how are you both contributing to the kind of Cambridge ecosystem with, with Ideaspace and, and the Bradfield Center. You've already alluded to it a, a little bit, but how do you see your, your position kind of within the ecosystem? I think first and foremost, you know, Cambridge is hugely collaborative. So we've kind of already alluded to the fact that there's a, a kind of, there's, you know, there's a kind of a feeder system in terms of workspace, at least as companies mature, mm. they've got lots of interesting places they can think about moving around Cambridge to stay in the, in the local area. Uh, but on top of that, uh, we do a lot of community kind of uh, building. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're coming up for our second birthday. We've done something like 550 events at the Bradfield Center. Wow. Um, so there's a huge kind of uh, program of 99% of them are free as well, where if you're interested in entrepreneurship or building companies pretty much every day of the week there's something interesting to come and see um so about 22,000 people have come through to see those events that's fantastic um so that's a big part of what we do you know and and, and it's worth making the point that the bradfield center is open to anyone not just our members that are based there full-time mm -hmm. so anyone can come to those events uh, and anyone can come to the cafe hang out have a meeting um, we were talking a little bit earlier about serendipity. You know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in serendipity. Mm -hmm. So it's one of those places where you can come, hang out, bump into interesting people, and hopefully something interesting develops from there. Um, and then more recently, we started to do more programs. So we've just announced a thing called MedTech Boost, which mm -hmm. is helping the NHS challenge uh, with challenges like mental health and healthy aging mm -hmm. through the application of AI. So we're supporting more of these kinds of programs as well. Mm -hmm. Maybe just a thing to tack on to what James was saying. I think the really exciting thing for Cambridge when the Bradfield Centre was opened up, it was this definite focus on how do we help companies scale and grow. Mm -hmm. So not just kind of the startup bit, but how do we help them gather the wider community, which is why I think James's experience in kind of growing companies and taking something to IPO is really important as he takes that experience into the heart of their community, mm -hmm. which is really fantastic and something that kind of kind of happens in Cambridge, but one of the challenges with Cambridge is, although it's a small place, a lot of this expertise was diffused, so the Bradfield Centre gives a real focus for those sorts of things. Um, we kind of work on the opposite end of the spectrum, so not kind of, kind of the way that I think about it is once you know what your business model is, kind of your job is to build a company and grow that and deliver it at scale. Whereas kind of the bit that we focus on at Idea Space is given that you have a hypothesis of something you can do for the world, how do you 
improve that and design a way of delivering that to people? And how do you get kind of that first product and service off the ground? So we very much focus on how do we help the university become a platform for entrepreneurs? When we started this idea space and they said, well, why do you think the university needs an incubator? I'm like, it really doesn't. I don't think the university should be growing companies. That's not what the university is good at. What the university is fantastic at is discovering things and looking at the world in new ways and then attracting really talented people to do that. So what we try to do at Tidearspace is to say, how do we use the university as a platform for entrepreneurs to discover new businesses? So kind of 80% of our founders have come from outside of the university. 90% of them have gone on to create a relationship with the university. Mm -hmm. It's one of my pet peeves is when people point to people and say, ah, they're an academic entrepreneur which is like to me saying they're a theoretical football player. Now, we're all <laughs> theoretical football players on a Saturday, right? But you don't want football players to be theoretical. You want entrepreneurs and the best entrepreneurs in the world, probably by definition, by and large, don't work at the university. So it's how do we attract them to Cambridge and how do we get them to interact with how the well university? Are you doing that? So how do you on? attract them in? Just by being welcoming, quite frankly. Yeah. I mean, the core job of an entrepreneur is to reduce uncertainty over time, right? So they figure out what question they need to answer and they go out and try to search it. So we've had entrepreneurs that come to us say, look, here's a market problem. We think the research to solve it is in the university. We just need a place to be in proximity to those researchers to try and solve them. So we're, and we get the largest source of new members for us are existing members and founders. So we're thankfully, I touch wood to this point and my marketing team won't thank me for this, is we don't actually market people come to find us. How do you both encourage interaction between your members or founders that are based in your centre? And how do you prefer or how do you like people to interact with each other? Kindly and respectfully, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so we, um, it's probably worth just saying that the Bradfield Centre is uh, part of the Central Working Network. So Central Working's core service delivery is all about connecting we call it our three C's and the three C's is connecting, collaborating and celebrating. So actually the team that work in the building do nothing apart from getting to know the businesses that work there, spotting uh, well, understanding their challenges or what they're trying to solve for. And then through connecting them to people, um, helping them grow their businesses. Mm -hmm. So it's a proven model over the nine years of central working that the more connections you make, the faster companies grow. So we make those connections not only within other companies in our network, but our wider networks like our VCs and universities and all of those kinds of things, other accelerators, etc. Um, so typically about 25% of those connections then lead to a collaboration mm -hmm. where the two people are actually doing business together. And then the celebration comes at the end when a, a contract is signed or a fundraising happens or, you know, something like that. So it's, it's actually a process that sits behind it. Mm -hmm. mm. No, definitely. I mean, I think the thing that's common to both is that we think of them as community spaces. You know, yeah. they're not workspaces. They're not yeah. office buildings. It's about how do we bring in, catalyze this community to connect and learn from each other. And I think the thing that we have in common to both of those is kind of rule number one is don't be an a-hole. Mm. <laughs> you know, right? Kind of, we're very careful about who we accept in and who we bring in. It's never a judgment call to say we think you will or won't be successful. Yeah. It's do we think that you will benefit from being a member of our community and will you bring something to that mm. community as well? Mm. So it's very much about helping them learn and connect from each other. And if that doesn't work, then maybe getting more involved. But it's very much about, I mean, so entrepreneurship is by definition, you're going to fail. You know, it wouldn't be an entrepreneurial journey if you weren't, there wasn't a negative expected outcome or an existing business would have done it. So it's really much how do we help each other through that learning journey and how do we make it successful as a community? Mm. We've already talked a little bit about your backgrounds and we've talked about what Ideaspace does and what the Bradfield Center does. 
mean, given your experience and the exposure you have to startups and, and founders, what are some of the biggest misconceptions you come across when you talk to kind of founding teams? Maybe if I could answer the question from the perspective of what is the difference in approach that a great founder takes versus maybe a novice or a new founder. Mm. So I think myths are a big thing, but kind of what's maybe the behavioral differences between the two. Mm -hmm. um, the, so I think... We as humans, there are two things we don't understand instinctively, which is understandable. One is the power of incremental improvement, and the other is probabilistic outcomes. So part of the challenge is kind of a lot of founders the first time think about the big idea or making the big deal or kind of there are these big step change things in their businesses. Um, and the reality is, coming to kind of James's earlier point about serendipity, serendipity is where opportunity meets preparation, right? You've got to work very hard over time to be able to take advantage of those moments when they come in. Kind of, if you do the maths and kind of this is why credit cards are so dangerous, kind of if you improve 1% every day for a year, at the end of the year, you're going to be 37 times better than you were at the beginning of the year. So it's just how do you improve slowly over time and how do you help your colleagues and your team do that? Whereas if you reverse it around, if you're 1% worse every year, at the end of the year, you're 2.5% what you were at the beginning. Mm. And a lot of people don't understand that in terms of continuous improvement and effort over time. Um, and then the second thing is, if we talk about probabilistic outcomes, it's we as humans talk about resulting. You know, we look at the result of something and we say, well, the things that people did to get the result were obviously the right things to do. And with all things, there's a percentage chance of it being right or wrong, and you can't focus on the result. Kind of if I take a three-point shot from kind of halfway down the basketball court, one in a million times I'll get it in, but that doesn't mean it's a good thing to do. Mm. But if you only see somebody doing that and you try to emulate the successful person, then that's what we do. Yeah, I, I think that's, I definitely agree with that. I think there's a lot of, I guess, glamour around being an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think that sometimes belies the hard work and the kind of the stress that goes into, you know, working in a early stage business. Mm -hmm. um, and also, it's a really unfair thing to, in some degrees, because I mean, not not to make a sweet, sweeping statement, but typically, entrepreneurs tend to be younger. Mm -hmm. especially if they're first-time entrepreneurs. Um, so the expectation that they're going to be good at everything is so unfair, right? You know, you might be a great um, CTO, but you might need to develop skills around building, hiring people, building teams, building a company culture, understanding financing, sales and marketing. On the flip side, you might be a business, you know, background person, might be good at the P&L and the raising finance, but then have the gaps around technical knowledge and all of those kinds of things. So to, to be a great CEO of an early stage business, you really have to be really well-rounded. Mm -hmm. And that's so hard if you haven't had experience. That's just... It's just a reality of like there's not enough hours in the day to be good at everything at a certain stage of your career. So finding the right investors, you know, to help, you know, coach you and, and to bring in those the kind of support to fill in the gaps or give you that advice is, you know, really important, I think. Absolutely. And maybe just to amplify that kind of it's not about the entrepreneur at the end of the day, right? No. Kind of an entrepreneur, if it's successful, is going to be one of tens, if not one of hundreds or thousands of people within a company. Yeah. And it's not about them. It's about the team they bring around them, about the kind of outcome that they support. That's a really good point, because I think everyone gets fixated about being the founder. Mm. And it's just as valuable to be one of the first 10 people in a business, mm. because it isn't just about all being the founder. You know, not everyone can have a world-breaking idea, but you can be a huge contributor to actually developing that business. You know, so I think we always talk about entrepreneurs and think about being a founder, mm -hmm. but there's nothing wrong with being an early team member. Mm. 
Yes, which is part of my annoyance when people say academic entrepreneur. I fully believe people can be entrepreneurial academics, but they don't have to be the entrepreneur. Just make sure you get equity. Just always. <laughs> <laughs> You were mentioning sort of some, a lot of people have gaps in certain places. So what are mm. some of the common gaps that you see in maybe first time entrepreneurs versus people that are slightly more experienced? And how can people go about finding appropriate ways to fill those common gaps? I mean, I think that largely depends on the background of the individual. Yeah. I, I think typically, you know, most people come from a technical background. As a, as a technical co-founder. So you tend to see gaps around sales and marketing strategy mm. uh, and maybe um, gaining you know, feedback from customers and actually shaping, allowing ideas in to shape your vision. Mm. That, that sometimes is an issue. Um, I mean, what I saw, interestingly, in Berlin, for example, you see more business people founding startups. Um, and again, there, you obviously really reliant on finding good CTOs mm. and if you don't know those people over a period of time it's all about building trust because obviously that's a, a key relationship for any business to be successful mm. um, you, they're also I mean maybe to less extent now but there was a bit of a trend as well to kind of start startups as a business person and then outsource all your development um, to either Eastern Europe or uh, Far East um, because you didn't have the technical background or you didn't have enough money to hire developers locally and again you know that doesn't tend to lead to great outcomes. No, definitely. I mean, maybe just to pick up on your point of maybe focusing on the first time entrepreneur founder that tend to be younger. Yeah. It tends to be at the risk of oversimplifying, but that's what we do, right? Kind of, it's that maturity and understanding of leadership and supporting people and mentoring, yeah. coaching. As you tend not to have those experiences, kind of, what's the first time you have to fire somebody? You know, that's probably because you managed them badly, you didn't train them, you didn't prepare them, you didn't hire them, right? But a lot of what first-time entrepreneurs, it's a lot about ego because it's all about them because that's essentially what we do in school these days, right? It's about them as individuals and them as things and just how do you get them out the way so they can amplify other people. And especially if they're doing that with people that are better at their jobs than the founder is, that's a really interesting dynamic around how do you do that effectively without becoming defensive. Yeah. Now, we often joke that in any founding team, hopefully there's one person that doesn't know what they're doing. And if you're a first-time founder, it tends to be you. Mm. <laughs> mm. And James, you have also worked in Silicon Valley for many years, as, as you've mentioned. What are some of the key differences you've observed between Silicon Valley's and Cambridge? startup community um i mean i don't know there's <laughs> other than the weather <laughs> yeah less earthquakes um i mean it's i think it's difficult to get drawn into a bit of a cliched kind of conversation that we've got so much to learn from silicon valley i, mm -hmm. I think there's definitely uh some middle ground mm -hmm. um i mean some some of the things that certainly i think were eye-opening for me um was you know the pace uh, of silicon valley and the kind of relentlessness of it and I think I mean I wasn't particularly data driven before I got a job in Silicon Valley um, with a, you know a US startup but oh my god if you don't know your metrics and you can't articulate an argument in numbers then there's no point going into the room so you know everything there's no there's nowhere to hide you know it's very performance driven in terms of its culture mm -hmm. so I mean you know it'd be a whole podcast to talk about US employment law and kind of US culture 
there's some, like I say, there's a middle ground. I don't think one's better than the other in terms of the European approach to that or the US approach to that. However, you know, I think there's no opportunity for deadwood in US uh, startups. And I think, you know, Stu just touched on the fact that there's always a founder that doesn't know what they're doing. And I think as you scale a business, you know, obviously the skill sets of the individuals changes over time. Mm -hmm. Um, So the people that were with you on day one might not be the people that are going to get you to year two. Um, And there's, like I say, there's no room for hiding. Um, There is, there is that kind of opportunity to grow uh, as an individual to keep going on the same journey. But at the same time, it took some adjustment to see people that you were long-term colleagues with that were there on Monday and then not there on Wednesday. That's just the kind of culture that you operate in, right? Um, which is quite jarring compared to the European experience where, you know, we tend to maybe, uh, well, there's a legal reason for keeping people longer and like going through processes of firing people. But, you know, it's uh, culturally, I think we're quite, forgiving uh, because it might be because we don't like conflict and we don't like actually dealing with that kind of letting go of deadwood so to speak in the nicest possible way mm. um so there, there were a couple of observations i mean and obviously i think i think mainly cambridge i don't know is similar in in some degree because it's a university town but i think the other thing when you when you spend time in san francisco everyone you meet socially is in tech Mm-hmm. It's just part of the culture. Everyone's either in tech or wants to be in tech. So you can't go anywhere without overhearing conversations or bumping into people. So from a kind of a networking perspective and just culturally, the whole city is focused on building companies. You know, that's quite different, I think, certainly to my experience in London. Obviously, there's pockets of it in London. But generally speaking, London's a big place, obviously much bigger than San Francisco. So there's some good reasons for that. But uh you know, you don't get that same intensity that everyone is kind of chasing the same dream. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the same or different in Cambridge, but uh, I still feel even though we've, we're have we all in tech and we've spent our entire careers in tech, I still wouldn't call it mainstream. Mm. I still can't talk to people in my family circle and explain what I do. People don't get it. <laughs> Whereas, you know, in the US, San Francisco in particular, that's not the case. Everyone in the family is trying to be an entrepreneur. Does that affect the approach that, uh, sort of founders or startups take in terms of attracting investment or sort of scale. Yeah, it, it all plays together really because you're just in a in an environment which is geared to support you as an entrepreneur. And I think another thing which we kind of talked about with John Bradford is the culture of paying it forward is there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I haven't experienced this, but Adelina spoke a little bit on our podcast about the fact that when she first came to Cambridge, it's really hard for her to open doors because people didn't know who she was. Yeah. She didn't have a reputation. She didn't have a job title. So without that, credibility in quotes it was really hard to make a network whereas in san francisco pretty much anyone will just talk to you and give you time because that's the culture whether you want it or not sometimes but yeah i mean you know like i say it's not necessarily a good thing i mean as an entrepreneur you you do have to be good at filtering because there's no lack of advice out there Mm. so what's good advice what's bad advice you've got to make your own personal judgment on that right Absolutely. And perhaps that's another thing, kind of what James and I do in Bradfield's idea and idea space do is we're an easy entryway into those networks in Cambridge for people that are newer just approaching the city. But I think one of the things to keep in mind is, and it's a Cambridge free fascination of why are we better than London or San Francisco, and we're not, is the short answer. We're different. And people call about Cambridge versus Silicon Valley. If you go on the Caltran from San Francisco to Palo Alto, that's 50 minutes. That's London to Cambridge. Mm. And they think of it as the same community and the same thing, and we 
try to differentiate ourselves yeah, from totally. London in days. Totally. I think I think you're absolutely right. I think it's not about London versus Cambridge, Cambridge versus Oxford, London versus Berlin. You know, why we have this natural inclination to create competition. Mm. Let's just grow the pie for everyone. <laughs> you know, it's like that's certainly always been my approach. It's like it's not about you're in competition with anyone. It's, uh, you know, it's all about those building relationships and partnerships. Yeah. And if you look at the best entrepreneurs that come out of Cambridge or the Valley or London, kind of, they'll work across all three, right? Mm. Their job is to find the best opportunities and the best talent around the world and recruit them. Mm. And that kind of ties back into one of your earlier questions, actually. It's like, you know, what do you see mistakes, common mistakes? Yeah. I think people get so attached to their idea, they think it's unique and they don't want to share it. Whereas actually, probably the likelihood is a lot of people have had that idea before. You know, it's all about socialising it, getting feedback, building momentum, um, you know, getting getting that kind of, I guess, well-rounded feedback on something. And then it's about execution at the end of the day. You know, not every idea is unique, but what differentiates people is how they execute on those ideas. Mm. Yeah. And then maybe to pick up another thing that people perhaps get wrong is <laughs> if you're trying to solve for a problem, do everything you can to solve that problem. Often people say, I want to be a successful entrepreneur in Cambridge. And almost by definition, that reduces the sorts of problems in companies you can build, or I want to be a successful entrepreneur in London. As we've had so many friends, kind of Thomas, that have been successful entrepreneurs and they take their business to the Valley or they take them to Bangalore or they take them to Tokyo. It's really what problem are you trying to solve and where is the best place in the world that you can do that? Mm. So if we take a slightly different stance, so we've looked at all the problems that startups have um, and what they can do to potentially solve them. So say we now have a successful startup who are looking to sell or exit. Uh, Stu, you were mentioning you've had some experiences with exits. Um, and so maybe we could talk a bit about that, about how uh, startups can best approach that aspect. Yeah. Well, I think the important thing when you're talking about exits is trying to understand is why is that a thing you want to do? Yeah. I mean, I think far too many people say, I want to start a company to exit it. You're like, well, okay, that seems like a strange mercenary thing too. Kind of an exit should always be, how do you help take your mission and your company to the next level? Mm. So kind of IPOs is about, do we want to get more financing? You've seen the recent Slack direct listing, which wasn't an IPO, which they didn't need the extra cash, so they just went to a different route. So it's really about how do you fit into your market, who are the other people in the ecosystem and how can you elevate yourself and your team to the next route? And that may be a strategic acquirer, that may be about going public to get extra financing or liquidity, but it's really about what does that type of deal do for you to develop your company over time? What's really interesting is that even the guys that have had multi-million pound trade sales still have regret that mm -hmm. they didn't stick with it and they didn't build it. It's like selling one of your children. You know, it's a really... A, probably invested more time in it than your children, to be fair. Well, yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's such a personal thing um, that if you've been with, a you know, the original concept all the way through building the business, a big part of it is your investors as well. You know, mm -hmm. are the investors in it for the long run or are the mm -hmm. investors pushing you for a, a return? So that goes back to the... You know, the old adage is, you know, make sure you pick the right investor, which is useless advice, because <laughs> what does a good investor look like? You know, show me the list of those and please, you know, and then I can go shopping there. Um, but, you know, the investors are, you know, you get an, you'll get an early indication in the early days if the investor's in it for the long run in terms of how they're mentoring you, how they're developing you, you know, how they're helping open doors for you and build mm. that business. And then as you pick up momentum, you know, there's... One of the examples that I referenced was they were one of their customers. They were selling to a customer. Um, they were struggling to do another series of financing. 
Um, they were quite open with the customer. They were, they were struggling and the customer loved their product so much they acquired them. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you do hit a wall. You know, there isn't an obvious route forward. Uh, and sometimes, you know, an exit at that point does make sense. But I think, again, maybe it's a, back to that Silicon Valley question about going and building the businesses. And, you know, it's the old kind of cliches, isn't it? You know, changing the world and all the, mm. the hackneyed expressions that we've all come to know and love from kind of Silicon Valley. Um, at least we invented the hackney expression. Yeah, we, we can own that bit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I've been re-watching. Re Have you watched the Silicon Valley HBO show? I oh, cringe, I'm watching I can't. it at the moment. <laughs> God, it's, there's so much truth in that show. But yeah, I mean, that. but that, you know, that goes back to that cultural thing. Uh, uh, even though it's extreme for humour, so much of that is founded in truth yeah. because that's the mindset, right? They're not looking for a 100 million exit. They're not looking for a 10 million exit. That's failure, yeah. right? And that's just, again, it's about mindset. You know, do you want a lifestyle business? Because, you know, you're going to live very comfortably on 10 million. But if you want to be an entrepreneur in the Silicon Valley scheme of things, you, you're kind of giving up if you're not going for a billion dollars, right? Yeah. Mm. I mean, so just to pick up on that, I've, I'm, I'm sure we've both got friends that have done this that sold his company for tens of millions of dollars. And I caught up with him nine months later and he was depressed because he felt like a failure. Yeah. And yeah, like, yeah. What is wrong with you yeah. in this culture that that's a thing, right? And you never have to work for the rest of your life and you feel that you failed. It's like, yes, well, next time I need to raise more money and have a bigger exit. And mm. there seems to be something unhealthy mm. there. But maybe at the risk of focusing on the negative aspects of them. I think the way that exits go wrong, which is kind of the counterpoint to kind of what makes a successful one, mm. is when you think of it as a transaction rather than a step in a relationship. To your point of what does that mean for your relationship with your investors? What does that mean for your relationship with your customers? And what does that mean for your relationship with your team? Is how does that go over time? So you look at the best founders and they will have multiple companies and multiple exits and multiple team members. And it's how do you look after that community as you go along? And mm. as you know, again, again, it ties back to that earlier conversation about the team changing at different stages of the company's uh, maturity. And so it's not uncommon for the founding CEO to be replaced at some point. It happened at Google, you know. So at some point you need a, you might need a seasoned CEO to take you further, you know, because you hit a natural wall. Mm. Yes. Now, Stu, as part of Ideaspace, you already said that a big part of that experience is to figure out how to build a business in the first place. Mm -hmm. So what do you see as kind of the key components of a successful business or business model for the founders that kind of come to Ideaspace? So I'm going to answer that in a different way, if that's okay. Because <laughs> we tend not to focus on the business per se. We focus on the behaviors of the founder. Okay. So what are the behavioral traits which we think tend to lead to a good outcome? Mm -hmm. So that's really all Ideaspace is and kind of I often joke, and I'm not sure if I've said this to you, James, I think the best thing that Cambridge did was help me understand my place in the world. As I came to Cambridge thinking I was great, not so much. Um, but also you meet people who are fantastically successful and you realize that they're human as invaluable as you, right? I've seen Nobel Prize winners have trouble locking up their bikes outside of business. And that kind of takes you away your excuse for not being great as you meet somebody like, wow, you're successful and you're an idiot. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I can I can behave like that and be successful. So kind of there are three things we look at and try to cultivate within our community, um, and they're all dichotomies. So that's what entrepreneurship is, and it's really about long-term and short-term focus. So the first thing is a very strong sense of humble arrogance. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so very specifically, arrogance is unfounded belief. And if you're going to be a successful founder, you've got to have an unfounded belief that you can do what nobody else in the world has done. But you've got to be humble along the way. Because if you're just arrogant, people will tell you to F off and won't want to work with you. But also you won't look for opportunities to learn along the way. So you've got to believe you can do something, but you've got to be humble and learn all the way along. Um, the second thing is skeptical optimism. Um, which opposed to journalists who are optimistic skeptics, I'm told. Um, So you've got to be optimistic. There is a way forward that you can find, but you can't take for anything for granted and be skeptical along the way. So how do you question what you think, you know, and there are wonderful ontological arguments you can get into, especially in Cambridge around that. And then the final one, which we often think is hardest or the thing that people misunderstand the most, is a strong sense of compassionate and patience. Um, So people are either impatient or they're compassionate. Um, But how do you blend the two? So if you're going to create something and change the world, we're all too busy for that. You know, I'm too busy. I don't want to do a new thing. I don't want to change my behavior. So if you're going to change it, you've got to be impatient. You've got to push people. You've got to encourage. You've got to make people uncomfortable. But you've got to do that compassionately. You know, if I'm impatient with my grandmother, she is going to hit me with her walking stick and refuse to help. Um, But if I'm doing it because, look, I know you want to get down to the corner stop because you're almost out of rum and the shop's about to close, she's going to let me encourage her. Rum. Okay. Yes, no, my dad grew up in Jamaica. might account for the anger with a stick. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, that's the... Anyway, no, we won't go into that story, (laughs) will we? (laughs) If you're compassionate and you show people you understand where you're coming from and kind of... We've got a mutual friend that talks about the three C's if you're in that situation of that curiosity, context, and compassion. You know, if you can understand people and show that you understand and you're going to make them impatient and uncomfortable, they'll let you do it. Mm. So kind of those are the three behaviors that we try to encourage in our community. Other than kind of I start as an entrepreneur because I met an entrepreneur and I had two thoughts. One, he's an idiot. And two, I can do what he did. Um, I was wrong on both counts because I was 20-something and what did I know, right? But it made me take that first step and gave me the confidence that I could at least try it. So Mm. kind of those are the things that we try to encourage. So give it a chance. Continually be learning. Be optimistic. Bring people along with you. But always be pushing Mm -hmm. because otherwise nothing's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So if a person has all of those qualities, how do... Do you help them frame the business side as well? Or is it mostly about encouraging those qualities and you believe the business will grow? I think if they have those things and and thing, then we don't need. So it's their job to grow their business, which is often where I think if you think of as an incubation center, incubators get it wrong as they think their job is to get the business. And then they get into conflict with the founder. Mm. We very much think that the founder's job is to grow their business and we will help them understand that. We will help them. Kind of, We have a trite phrase talking about hackney phrases and kind of, we're never a place where we answer people's questions, but we're hopefully a community that get them to answer better questions mm-hmm. and figure out where to go and get those answers for us. They've got to lead that journey and they've got to own it themselves. Do you go about it the same way, James? Uh, no. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> I mean, I think we're like, like we said at the beginning, we're kind of operating at different stages in the company formation. Yeah. So our companies are typically, you know, on their way at the point they come to us. Mm. So they're typically uh, at revenue or have raised money um, and, you know, have a have the kind of runway to develop over the next 18 months. So the kinds of support that we deliver is much more kind of, I guess, tailored and designed for their stage. So that's, that's typically surrounding them with the kinds of organizations that can help them grow as quickly as possible. 
Um, That might be investors, that might be technology providers, that might be accountants and that, you know, kind of lawyers and all those kinds of things. So we're a little bit later stage. So the conceptual kind of idea stage is, is in the rear view mirror by the time people get to us. So what do you see sort of turning that around? What do you see as a successful business model or is there such a thing? I mean, that depends on the nature of the business, really. Yeah. I mean, you know, my background is SaaS. So to answer that question from my world, it's about, uh, you know, how can you decouple the cost of sales from uh, incremental growth? So you know, having a business model that scales massively without building your cost base at the same time, Mm. which is why SaaS has been, you know, with things like AWS has been revolutionary. So you can quite easily create 80% margin software businesses these days because your cost to get started and your cost to provide the infrastructure is completely transformed from where it was 15 years ago. Now, does that differ in some of the other sort of tech industries? So I'm thinking biotech because of my Yeah, so I mean, with like medical, for example, the investors are much more patient because that's, you know, probably a 10-year process, right? To go from product development through to trials. That's a completely different model, therefore a completely different business case. You have have to have much more patient capital. Mm. Um, Whereas in software, you're going to get very quick results because you can stand up products quickly. You can get it in front of customers and start to get feedback and have an indication of if you're onto something very, very quickly. Mm. Well, it has been a really interesting tour de force from kind of very early beginnings of founders trying to figure out what kind of business do they want to do to then the whole scaling up part to maybe end on a slightly lighthearted question. If you were... A founder today, what kind of business would you start, Stu? That's a really interesting question. What do you think, James? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. What should we do? Should we go in there? We should do something together. We probably should. I think if I knew the answer to that, I'd be doing it. Okay, nice. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Good dodge of that question, yeah. Yeah, I think at my age, you've got to keep doing what you know you can do, right? So it would be something around developer tools, I would have thought. Mm -hmm. Finding a gap in the market there for supporting software developers. But I have no plan, <laughs> no clue. Um, I'm I'm busy helping grow the companies in the Bradfield Centre right now. That's right. Well, thank you so much, Stu. Thank you, James, for coming on the show. That was really interesting. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. I found that discussion really interesting, particularly mm. Stu's points about that founders are essentially human after all and can make mistakes and what he was talking about sort of founder behavior and how you can spot a good versus potentially not so good founder based on how they approach their business and how they go about doing that. I found that really interesting. Yes, I agree. And and also I for me it was interesting to learn about the important role the community at Ideaspace and the community at the Bradfield Center play for entrepreneurs to, to grow as founders, but also to help their businesses grow and to tap into these networks that enable them to do that. Thank you very much to Stuart and James for joining us on Q Talks. This podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. And we'd also like to say a big thank you to the team at QTech who have all been working very hard behind the scenes. Thank you very much for listening and please do go ahead and rate us or leave us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme, or tell us about your experiences with applying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io slash qtalks. <laughs>